electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on a special podcast. Galleon Group founder Raj Rajaratnam convicted on 14 counts of securities fraud and conspiracy. We have his first interview since he was released from prison after serving seven years. When you look at the wiretap for dirty people, what do you see? You see dirt. Prosecutors accused him of making millions by trading illegally, and now he's ready to tell his story. Today, are you now saying or accepting that you were provided with information? As a hedge fund manager, you get hundreds of calls a week, bits of information. Plus, pro sports hit by COVID in spite of vaccinations and safety protocols. And our 2021 Person of the Year still tweeting. I think that when you start name-calling people and trying to bully people, it's a bad look. It's Wednesday, December 15th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. There's a high profile tax fight that's breaking out on Twitter between Senator Elizabeth Warren and, you guessed it, Tesla CEO Elon Musk. Senator Warren tweeted, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. Musk responded, as usual, um, he said, you remind me of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. He then added, please don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. Then later, Musk tweeted, and if you opened your eyes for two seconds, you would realize I will pay more taxes than any American in history this year. Then he added, don't spend it all at once. Oh, wait, you already did. Um, so once again, saying exactly what he thinks about this. But that was kind of the first thing I, I, I saw when I heard about it, Senator Warren's tweet is, look, this guy is going to pay a ton of money in taxes. More than more than any American more than at any she'll point pay in And everyone she's ever known will ever pay. Well, more and, than and, any of us. More than any of us. <laughs> and then you add pay. on you add on the shareholder. I mean, just just let's just check off the list of, of why. he. Now, here's what I'll say with Arthur Brooks in mind. The office of the Senate deserves respect, okay? So I understand that. Um, on the other hand, you, you add up what he's gonna pay, which is gonna be 10 billion plus. You add up what all his employees pay. You add up what all the shareholders who eventually sell Tesla pay in capital gains. You add up the number of jobs he's created. You add up the EV market. You add up the carbon, if you're, you know, if you wanna, if you wanna do uh, EVs, you, you own for that. So now let's compare Elizabeth Warren's contributions to the world, Andrew. I, I know you love her and you, you think she's contributing a lot, but let's compare. What, give them to me again. What are they? The, the, the actual contributions to society and the world. And not only that, he pointed out a couple of things that she's never really answered to. Now, I'm not going to say I enjoyed those tweets. Those are the most enjoyable tweets I've seen since Trump got banned. I won't say that. But... Uh, 
wait a minute, I was going to be Arthur Brooks, and here I am. Uh, okay, let me try and play Arthur Brooks for a moment and just point out okay. the reason that she is so frustrated by this might be not only because of what Elon Musk is doing with selling a lot of stock this year before they're going to be able to pass any higher tax laws or any change in the tax laws. And it's not just Elon Musk who's been doing this. If you add it up, it's something like $240 billion that the richest Americans have stole, sold in stocks this year, far more than they've sold in years past, far more. And that's because they know tax changes are coming, not only in the United States, but in places like Seattle. That's why you Maybe have Jeff Bezos. Maybe that's a good Bezos. thing. You're, that's we're why you have Sachin right? yeah, but, but you we're also, getting at it. You've got we're, Jeff we're getting Zuckerberg. At it. Yeah, Which we weren't getting at before. Too, is so that, we're, look, getting at it. we're getting at the Go money ahead. that we supposedly were never going to get because they were never going to sell. A couple of just quick notes. One is that in Elon Musk's case, and I will be defensive of Elon Musk in this instance in a different, in a different way, his selling this year, I would argue, actually has very little to do with the tax changes coming up right. potentially next year or not, good his selling sell, has maybe. to do with the fact that he actually has to sell because right. he has to actually pay taxes right. because he has these options. Might be a good so, time to, completely to sell, too. So I just want to put that to the side. Yes, there are other people who are selling, uh, Becky, this year that may very well be doing that for tax reasons. Right. But Elon Musk, I don't believe, is Agreed. one of them. So no, I, just I agree. Wanna, he I wanna, has to for the stock I want to separate them out right. as, as different things. I agree. Um, clearly... Elizabeth Warren doesn't seem to appreciate how much in taxes he's going to pay. Um, her argument, as you know, is much more around how much people have made in large part through stock, effectively uh, un uh, uh, unrealized gains. That's her argument. I'm not suggesting, as you know, I don't believe in taxing unrealized gains. But the last point I'd make, and it's just to the point, I, I think, of, of, of honoring everybody I think there is something just ungraceful, let's just say, about punching down in the way that some of the language and rhetoric is, given what we're all trying to do. If we all really are trying to live an Arthur Brooks life, uh, I think that, that the comment that's where, where he said, if you, if you would wake up for two seconds and, and see how much I'm paying, I think those, those are very fair and, and reasonable things to say, given how much he's paying. I think that when you start name-calling people and trying to bully people, it's a bad look. I, it's I would, just a I would bad, agree with that look. to a certain extent, but I think she started this because I don't so think she's exactly that stupid. What I, I, mean, I don't think she's that stupid to not. She was. This was a specious argument. You remember first blood? Remember Rambo? You drew first blood. I did. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. I didn't cause this. But once you start it, I'm going to do a Rambo on your. Ass. And, and that's exactly what what we're seeing. I mean, she, he didn't well, drop first. I, she's horrific about these these these, these I, things I, she throws I, out I in the name calling. I think that there's name calling on also. I'm not. By the way, I think there's but lots she of doesn't times even where Senator it, Warren it, is where Senator Warren is out of line. <laughs> Hold on. I'm right. telling you, Joe. Right. I'm telling you in the most bipartisan human way, in right. a way that does not like come Arthur across in, in, with most other journalists on television, that Senator Warren often punches down herself and shouldn't. But, no, yeah, That's Andrew. a bad look, too. What I'm just suggesting is when you start to call people names, no matter on what political side you're on, it's, it's not a good way to do it. And at a time when, when Elon Musk is being heralded as the time man of the year and everything else, right. um, you should act, yeah. he has every right to defend himself, and he should. I'm just suggesting when it gets into name-calling, it's, it's, there's got to be a better right, way. And there's got to be a better no, way no, no, for, I take for that Senator back. Warren as well. 
an update now on the impact of the COVID outbreak. Starting with the NBA last night, seven Brooklyn Nets players were ruled out because of COVID protocols. The team had only eight players available for their game. And uh, that is the minimum required by the league before cancellation. Now, Brooklyn beat Toronto in overtime thanks to uh, some help from uh, four rookies on the roster that were called into service. Meantime, COVID outbreaks are taking a toll in the football world and might even decide which teams play in the Super Bowl. ESPN reporting that 75 NFL players have tested positive in the last few days, with the Rams and Browns being hit now particularly hard. Uh, the Rams coach saying that all 13 players on the COVID list were vaccinated. And a COVID outbreak shutting down Cornell's campus, my alma mater, during finals week. The university announcing yesterday all final exams will be moved to an online format. The move was sparked by an active student, active student cases that now topped 469. The curve, guys, it was like a true J curve. If you watch what was happening at Cornell, and you're seeing this J curve happening all over the Northeast. It's happening at Harvard. Uh, I, there's happening, there's a, I saw a bunch of schools where this was happening. Go ahead, Bex. Yeah. Well, I just saw a bunch of schools where the same thing was happening. And, you know, it was right after Thanksgiving, everybody came back for the two weeks of exams right. and it took off. And you're looking at Omicron, at least in the New York and New Jersey area, outpacing or, or on its way to outpace Delta. I think it's now up to about 13 percent. I think nationally it's something like 3%, 3% or less. nationally. Yeah, that's what I saw. 3% um, nationally. But Delta but, but is you're still the at big Omicron thing. even higher. So yeah. it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the next couple, couple of days and, and weeks. I'm already, I don't know if you've, you've had this yet, a couple of different events and other things where people are either canceling them yeah. outright or uh, adding testing protocols on top or all sorts of things. So I think we're. We're, we're about to get into the soup. And, I, and I think it's going to get worse yeah, over the next few well, well, months. There's a convergence of, there's a convergence, I mean, you don't have as many hospitalizations, presumably, with Omicron, but you got Delta still around causing right. the hospitalization. And they got the flu season coming. You could get Omicron and Delta, theoretically, I guess. And, uh, and did you see hospitalizations are actually up with young people? I, I think when it comes to Omicron, you know, this is much more mild. But, right. but it still is putting younger people in the hospital at higher rates. Well, that's rates, the question. Like up if, 20% or something. If Delta were gone and you just had a really mild Omicron, can we ever reset our thinking to, yeah, there's Omicron around. I'm yeah, not going to stop living. You get is to endemic at some and point. And especially with I just the don't Pfizer. Know if that's right now. Especially with the Pfizer pill. The Pfizer pill's that's not here yet either. Do. Yeah, I think it's, it, you're looking at probably the last hurrah of this, right? Like the last big wave and crush. It's just that I think the yeah. numbers will get worse over the next month because we've seen the spike, no coincidence, two weeks after Thanksgiving. You're going to see people getting together at Christmas. You're going to see people getting together at New Year's. And you're going to yeah. see spikes in the two weeks that come after both those periods. Omicron's probably everywhere. It just probably, probably is. Yeah. You're all over the place. Are you leaving us again? Are you, uh, are you going to be we in that We've got an seat? interview in just a little bit uh, with Raj Rajaratnam. Uh, You're leaving former again. Former hedge fund manager, Rand Galleon, went to prison yeah. um, for seven or ten years um, for insider trading, one of sort of the, the big stories of the aughts, if you will. And uh, we're going to be speaking with him for the first time uh, since his release from prison. He's written a book uh, about the experience uh, prosecuted by Preet Bharara, and there is so much to dig in. He got seven to ten. How many? Did he do? Seven to ten day, Seven to ten hours sounds scary uh, to me for for uh, for prison, doesn't it? The sound of that door. Yep. You know what I mean? It does. It does. When we come back, Raj Rajaratnam convicted of insider trading after a massive federal wiretap, and now he's speaking out. The influence of those phone calls on your decision to make the trades. How important were those phone calls? Zero. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. And today, we're bringing you the first interview with Raj Rajaratnam, the former hedge funder and founder of the Galleon Group, which at its peak around 2007, managed $7 billion in assets. Rajaratnam was convicted 10 years ago on 14 counts of conspiracy and securities fraud in one of the biggest cases of insider trading in history. After serving seven years of an 11-year sentence and paying more than $150 million in fines to federal authorities, he has written a book about his experience, and he sat down with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Hi. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. Let's talk about insider trading then. Raj Rajaratnam, in much of the aughts, late aughts specifically, became one of the most prominent hedge fund managers in New York, across Wall Street, potentially in the world. He was known as having a great gut. Uh, He would trade constantly, um, make remarkable and enormous profits, became a billionaire in the process, but in particular seemed to have a knack for buying stocks ahead of news. A knack like that could get you noticed by the SEC. Is that what happened? Well, in this case, absolutely. There were a number of trades which clearly came up inside the SEC as suspicious that led to investigations to try to understand how it was uh, that Raj was having some of the success that he was having. What's so interesting about this case is that it really did demonstrate and expose to the public in many ways not necessarily for the first time, but maybe in one of the more prominent ways, um, just how professional money managers and hedge funds work to get information that every investor is looking for an edge, a little tidbit, something. And so he had an army of analysts and investors who were trolling for information. When Raja Ratnam caught the attention of the SEC, they launched a years-long investigation that started somewhat quietly, but took a very dramatic shift at an interesting time. A wiretap went live in March of 2008. What was going on in the world of Wall Street at that time and over the next few months? Well, Wall Street and later the entire economy was about to enter a freefall. This was the march into the fall 
of 2008, when, of course, the financial crisis took place. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch. AIG required a, a bailout by the government. This was that period, and he was trading um, back and forth, in and out throughout. Breaking news all over Wall Street this morning. This is a special early morning edition of Squawk as Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy, AIG working to raise cash and come up with some kind of survival plan, and Bank of America buying Merrill Lynch for about $50 billion in stock. During the dramatic months of the financial crisis in 2008 and the recovery following, federal agents were listening to hundreds of calls in and out of Raj Rajaratnam's office, building a case in real time on what they heard as illegal sharing of information. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Preet Bharara, and I'm the United States Attorney in the Southern District of New York. Today, we take decisive action against fraud on Wall Street. And by the fall of 2009, Wall Street had a new sheriff, so to speak. On stock after stock, as the complaints allege, in companies like Hilton and Google and Advanced Micro Devices, these defendants allegedly conspired with each other to cheat the market and enrich themselves by trading on inside information to turn profits of more than $20 million. Former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara was joined by the head of the SEC's Division of Enforcement, laying out the case against Rajaratnam. What we learned is that the secret of his success was not genius trading strategies. He is not the astute study of company fundamentals or marketplace trends that he is widely thought to be. He is not a master of the universe. He is a master of the Rolodex. Gentlemen, behind the barriers, please. Greed, sometimes, is not good. This case should be a wake-up call to Wall Street. Okay, great. I'm Scott Cohn at U.S. District Court in Manhattan. We want to show you some pictures from just a few moments ago of Raj Rajaratnam, the co-founder of the Galleon Group, arriving at court for his arraignment later today on 11 criminal counts in a growing federal probe of insider trading among hedge funds. All right, got to let us through now. Is hey, your, is your come back. Come on, come on. Don't scratch my car. Raj Rajaratnam was convicted on 14 counts and was released from prison two years ago. 20 seconds. Okay, great. Thank you. Is this me? They're coming back to me. We have his very first interview since that time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. Uh, it has been uh, quite some time and quite a, quite a story that you have lived. Um, and you haven't spoken throughout all of it. And now you are. Why? I had a first-hand view of how the process works. I believe that law and order is extremely important for any civic society. But my experience is something that should concern every American citizen, and let me elaborate. Number one, people who care about civil liberties should understand what I went through. Number two, I believe strongly that there should be checks and balances and a small group of prosecutors, for whatever reason, bend the rules to win at all costs. And as your newspaper, the Sunday, the New York Times editorial said, there needs to be balances for prosecutors who overreach. 
and that's the reason I want to talk about these social justice issues. I think it's extremely important. I don't necessarily want to relitigate the case. But let me ask you this. Um, you've maintained your innocence throughout this, but you were convicted by a jury. You appealed the case. Uh, the appeals court effectively reaffirmed the decision. Do you believe in the justice system? Overall, I do. When I decided to become a United States citizen in 1983, I accepted the rules of this country. And so I accept the verdict of the jury because that's the bedrock of American judicial system. But let me step back. The, um, the, the jury, another jury, in the case of a co-conspirator, the same Southern District, the same charges with the same witnesses found the defendant not guilty. Let me explain further. Five years after my conviction, yes, I did lose the appeal. The Second Circuit rejected uh, Mr. Barara's theory of insider trading. Preet Barara. Preet Barara's and said that the downstream trippy should not be held guilty. My contention is this, go after the original tipper, the insider who gave the information. So what is interesting to me is that in 2020, when Preet Bharara was no longer under the public light and glare, he assembled a task force and the conclusion he called it the Barara Task Force, and the conclusion was that insider trading laws are murky, it, def it needs to be defined, and they feel sorry for the market participants. So my question is, if you thought it was murky in 2020, how did you convict 80 people in 2010? Now, let me explain. I do accept the verdict of the jury as an American citizen. It's a bedrock of American justice. But what I'm trying to convey here is there needs to be checks and balances. But are, but are you suggesting that being a quote-unquote tippy in an insider trading case effectively, that being the tippy should be considered legal? And are you suggesting you, you were the tippy? No, you have a tipper. What I'm just merely saying what the Second Circuit yes. affirmed, that the tippy should know that an insider violated his fiduciary responsibility and gave a benefit. That's not my, it's how the Second Circuit ruled five years after my conviction. Right. I understand that. What, what I'm asking is today, are you now saying or accepting that you were provided with information by a tipper as the tippy? I didn't understand at that time. You know, think about it. as a hedge fund manager, a large hedge fund manager, you get hundreds of calls a week with bits of information of varying degrees of reliability. You listen to them because you want to know what's in the market. Nobody said, hey Raj, I just got this from somebody. I didn't, I didn't know 90% of the source, the people who may or may not have violated. Plus, a lot of people in this business puff. They just say things. I want to make one point. 100% of my trades 
were based on the written analysis of my 35 analysts. We were a deep research firm. I spent 40 million a year on research. Right. What do you say to the critics who say two things? One is they say, look, you could have testified under oath and perhaps should have. So it's hard to speak now when you don't necessarily have to be under oath, I hope you're telling the truth, um, to speak out now but not then. Well, uh, as you know, my lawyer was a very seasoned veteran lawyer, John Dowd. And our strategy was to show that every one of the conversations in the wiretap was in the public domain. And if it wasn't the public domain, his question to jury is, why are we here? Right? So we were prepared to testify, but he told me, Raj, we won this case. We'll see you in the Second Circuit. Thank you. What did your client say after the verdict was read? Oh, I would, he, he was just fine. He, I'm not going to discuss that with you. He looked kind of stunned. Well, how would you feel? He told you that you won the case prior to the jury's uh, verdict. Now, so you believed, you believed going into the verdict that you had won? Correct, because he was the expert, and I sat there, and the former counsel of the SEC showed numerous articles and numerous reports that showed that everything that was on the wiretap right. was in the public domain. So I decided, based on his advice, not to testify. Let me ask you about this, though, because one of the issues is there is lots of things in the public domain, and that was a huge part of your defense, which is to say that there was written documentation uh, of either anal analyst reports or news reports about speculation and whatnot. But isn't it possible that that could exist at the same time, and this is what the prosecutors contended, that that could exist at the same time that these phone calls existed, and in fact that the phone calls ultimately actually carried more weight than the documents. Okay, let me answer it this way. We had an existing position in each of these stocks prior to the phone calls. Now, I would maintain that the phone calls were illegally wiretapped. The affidavit by Agent Kang was full of lies, and the judge ruled that the wiretaps had a reckless disregard for the truth. Yet he allowed the wiretaps. And a lot of legal experts were alarmed that if this happened, other Americans could be wiretapped. I think that's a big, big issue. So when you look at the wiretap through a dirty peephole, what do you see? You see dirt. When you give snippets of wiretaps in the courtroom, you don't give the full picture. And so I, I mean, the judge himself said, if you call your mother and say you're coming for dinner, it could be seen criminal in a courtroom setting. So, but, but just take a step back, which is to say, and I, I accept that you're suggesting that the wiretaps were illegal, but what I'm asking is, if we could put that aside for a second, the influence of those phone calls on your decision to make the trades, how important were those phone calls? Zero. As I said, I had a prior position in every one of these stocks. I listened to my analysts, and these analysts, it wasn't that they came and talked to me, they had to write reports. 
There's one particular call I want to talk about a gentleman named Raj Gupta. He's a former head of McKinsey. He was a board member of Goldman Sachs in that fall of 2008. And they spoke at a very critical moment in September. Broadly, what was going on in the headlines, as you recall at that time? When Rajat Gupta called Raj Rajaratnam, Goldman Sachs had just completed a board meeting, which unbeknownst to the public, um, included the approval and information that Warren Buffett was about to take a stake in Goldman Sachs, which was an effort to provide confidence to the market and provide confidence around the future of Goldman Sachs. At that time, there were even questions about whether Goldman Sachs would survive. The president has just walked out. He's going to be in speaking. Let's Short listen to what ago, he has to House say. The House of Representatives passed a bill that is essential to helping America's economy weather the financial crisis. The Senate passed the same legislation on Wednesday night. When Congress sends me the final bill, I'm going to sign it into law. A major problem in our financial system is that banks have restricted the flow of credit to businesses and consumers. Many of the assets these banks are holding have lost value. The legislation Congress passed today addresses this problem head on. And literally minutes after that meeting was over, Rajat Gupta, who also had a business relationship with Raj Rajaratnam, called him. It was a very short call, but it became a critical component of the case against Raj Rajaratnam and also Rajat Gupta. Within five minutes of that call, Rajaratnam bought about $35 million of Goldman stock, which made him a huge profit on the trade. You know, to this day, both gentlemen argue and claim that call was not about what Rajat Gupta learned during that board meeting about the Warren Buffett investment. But clearly, the jury has decided differently. This audio is from the federal wiretap. It and dozens of similar recordings were submitted into evidence in Roger Rotnam's trial in 2011. Hi. Hey, Ian. Hi, buddy. How are you? So, big drama yesterday, but yeah, I, 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 I heard. <laughs> hmm? I heard a little, um, I mean, the last three minutes of the day. No, I got a call at 358, right? Yeah. Saying something good might happen to Goldman, right? Can you tell us what, because we've never heard your side of the story, um, very famously, uh, Rajat Gupta yes. uh, apparently made this phone call to you in the middle of the financial crisis, right when Warren Buffett was about to make an investment in Goldman Sachs. Yes. Do you remember all of that? And do you remember what he effectively told you? Yes. I know Rajat told you that he didn't remember it. It was a 16-second call, and I remember every second of that call. So what did he say? He was calling at about 3.54 or 3.50, just before the market closed, to ask about a, the, his investment in Voyager, which was housed at Lehman Brothers, and Lehman had gone under, and he wanted some documentation. So he called me when he got out of the, as I now found out, out of the Goldman Sachs board meeting. I have no idea that he was at a Goldman Sachs board meeting. I had no access to his calendar. And he said, I'm calling about the, uh, my investment in the Voyager. I said, Rajat, I think TARP is about to be passed. We had a consultant in Congress sending us reports about whether TARP would be passed. Right. And at 325, I got an email from the Cypress Group that was a consultant saying it looks likely that TAP would be passed. So I said, Rajat, 
I'm in the middle of a big trade. It looks like TAP's going to be passed. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of financial stocks. And he said, that would be good for Goldman. I said, thank you. I'll call you back later. After that morning I had bought Goldman Sachs, it wasn't like I bought Goldman Sachs from some tip. The morning I bought Goldman Sachs, I was buying Goldman Sachs, and these are in my records. I bought Morgan Stanley. I bought the XLF, which was a financial index. But when you look at through a dirty people, you say, oh, Rajaratnam bought Goldman Sachs. Obviously, I increased my position in all these stocks when my consultant said, TAP's going to be passed. Warren Buffett never entered into my uh, mind when I bought it. Let me ask you a broader question uh, just about the way trading happens and the way the public oftentimes thinks about Wall Street. They think it's a, that the whole business is unfair, that, it's a, that there's some kind of insider trading ring, that, that the access to information that you have, possibly, by the way, even from a consultant, for example, is different than the access that my mother might have. What do you think about that? Well, you know, we spend maybe 10 or 12 hours a day doing deep research. There's a theory called the mosaic theory of yep. Wall Street, where you take little dots of information and connect it, and that's perfectly legal. Now, your mother might not spend 10 hours a day on Wall Street. What I would tell her is to give your money to Fidelity or a professional money manager, because we spend a lot of effort and time analyzing, reading research reports, analyzing 10Ks and 10Qs. We get access to the um, reports of brokerage firms right. like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. So yeah, it is right. the public, um, they don't spend enough time. Now, I am so heartened that with Robin Hood and the COVID, a lot of people are participating in the market. There's tremendous amount of information right. available and hopefully lots of people will uh, participate in the capital market. But let me ask you about this. Uh, in your book, you wrote, if I am guilty, then the entire investment business should be declared illegal. What do you mean by that? I mean that if innocent chit-chat, you can ask me, why do you chit-chat? Because you want to know what's in the market. Innocent chit-chats, where no granular information of mergers and acquisitions or earnings per share are considered guilty, right? Then that's what we do. I want, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to not necessarily litigate my case, but to talk about this bigger social issue. This is a bigger than Raj Rajaratnam. I, but I do want my peers to read the book and judge me. You were a billionaire before this began. Can I ask how much money you have right now? Well, you know, from where I come, we don't advertise um, how much you have or how much you don't have. But let me say this. I'm comfortable. And since coming from prison, I have a clean canvas. My father, when I was growing up, told me one thing that stuck with me. He said, Raj, you should spend the first third of your life learning, the second third of your life earning, and the last third of your life giving. I'm 64 years old. I'm in the last third of my life. And I plan, and I'm fortunate enough, that I can give to the less fortunate. 
No, I didn't wait till the last third of my life to give. My father gave his entire estate to charity. Right? I have given money to charity, and I just want to correct you one thing. I did not make a single cent. If everything I did was illegal, the money went to the investors. It didn't come to Raj Rajaratnam's pocket. I gave more to charity than what was alleged that I was made. So how can you call me greedy? Do you understand what I, I'm trying I, to I, say? I understand what you're trying so to say. But my point is this. I want to now give, and I, since coming out of prison, I have given to charity both in the United States and in the country that I was right. born. You said that the experience of being in prison changed you and changed you for the better. Why? Well, I had a deeper appreciation for my friends who visited me, not once, not twice, but many times. I had 110 people on my visitors list, which they tell me is a BOP record. I had a deeper appreciation for my family, my wife and children who walked every step of this journey with me. I learned patience. You know, as a hedge fund manager, you go from one adrenaline-filled moment to another, constantly um, short of time. I had time. So I think I became, and I reflected more. Right. And so I think I became a bigger, better person. If you could go back and do it all over again, what would you do differently? And I will say that I believe that the last sentence on the final page of the book says that you have no regrets, and that surprised me. So let me um, tell you a little story. A year or two before I uh, was released, my daughter, who's a lawyer, came to visit me with my family. And she said, Dad, we'd like, we'd love to have you back home sooner or never go to prison. But we are so proud of you that you stood on principles and fought them despite understanding there's a trial penalty in this country. Studies have shown that if you go to trial, they punish you and you get 2x the sentence that you would have gotten if you just you made, made a deal. Okay, if you made a deal. And if you became a cooperating witness, you get parole. That was the only time in this entire episode that tears came to my eyes. I looked at my other two children and they nodded. My wife was passive, but I knew what she was thinking. I had no regrets. I have had a charmed life. And as a first generation immigrant, I realize how lucky I am to live in this country. 5% of the world's people live in this country. I have no regrets. I am lucky. I don't see people lining up to immigrate to China, Russia, Japan, India, but they want to come to this country. And the reason they want to come to this country is you can speak out if, without being penalized. Right. Raj Ratnam, we appreciate you being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating story. Um, insisting on your innocence. We appreciate, uh, we appreciate it. The book is called Uneven Justice. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline Rahotis. Special thanks to our Squawk Box colleague, Jacqueline Corba, for her work on this episode and our editor, John Lazaration. Please follow Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you're listening now. And tell us what you think about the show anytime. We're on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.